and a snap shackle on the bail of the fiddle block for securing the rope traveler. <laughs> so, so, so imagine Chris and me in oh. his driveway trying to figure out where what? to insert this rope based on those instructions. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by where all the fireworks are coming from. Are you guys hearing all the fireworks? Oh, my God. It's just incredible. Well, it was incredible. I'm not hearing them anymore. Oh, I'm still hearing them. I've been hearing like for months. Just fireworks. Maybe I'm just hearing gunshots. I hope not. Chris, are you hearing it? Yeah, there are people uh, shooting them off here in Lincoln, Mass. And where are they all coming from? Like, why is this suddenly a thing? And it's I don't... Dislate youth. And people are just stuck at home and they're bored. And therefore, for anyone who doesn't know, for anyone who lives outside of the United States, I think this is happening all over the U.S. There's been like this massive number of, of illegal fireworks going off. I guess it's not illegal in all states, but here in Massachusetts it is. And it's just all the time hearing fireworks. Anyway... I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health in the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am here with Chris Gill. Hello. Welcome, Chris. Hello. And Don Thea. Welcome, Don. Hi there. Both from the Departments of Global Health here at the BU School of Public Health. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we are going to look at a study on the relationship between handgun ownership and suicides. And the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about an article on whether or not we should be doing controlled trials to evaluate COVID policy and make decisions around COVID policy. And in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or things that just, in Chris's case, blew his mind and then subsequently blow our minds. So let's get into our first segment. And I do, before we want to get into this one, a disclaimer for everyone, as we did the last time we talked about a, a suicide topic, that we are going to be talking about suicide. So if this is a uh, topic that is concerning to people. You may not want to be listening to this episode. And also to point you to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. So let's get into this one. This is a study that looked at the impact of handgun ownership on suicides. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Handgun Ownership and Suicide in California by first author David Studert of the Stanford Law School and the School of Medicine in Stanford, California. So this one did get a lot of headlines. So let me read you a few of them. So NBC News says handgun ownership is a major risk factor for suicide with major risk factor in quotes. The New York Times says first time gun ownership at risk for suicide major study confirms. Business Insider says handgun owners are far more likely to die by suicide than people who don't own guns. And the Sacramento Bee, which I picked because obviously it's local to the area where the study was done, says gun ownership four times more likely to die by suicide than non-owners. Stanford-led study says, and obviously they plugged the fact that it was a Stanford study because this is the Sacramento Bee. So Don, can can you give us the intro to this study, what they did and what it was all about? Sure. This was a study that that sort of took advantage of some some pretty restrictive laws in California in terms of gun ownership and and gun registration, which allowed them to really build a cohort where they were able to look at first gun acquisition and then subsequent suicides as well as deaths from other causes. 
they tracked firearm ownership and mortality over a 12-year period in a cohort of 26 million adult residents of California. Really big. Yeah. And of those 26 million people followed over that period of time, there were 700,000 members of this cohort who acquired a first handgun during the study period, which lasted from October 2004 until December 2016. Which, which, by the way, in and of itself is is you know worth remarking on. I mean, this yeah. is for our Big listeners numbers. outside the U.S. who obviously probably most know that we have very liberal gun laws in the United States, but that's it's just shocking to me. Yeah. So the way they built the cohort is that they linked handgun transfers to all-cause mortality among adults in California by using a series of historical extracts of the California Statewide Voter Registration Database, which enumerates all registered voters in the state. And it has to be kept up to date. So it's a really good um, source of relocations and deaths. And it's, it's a very current database. They eliminated all those people at the beginning of each cohort period who owned guns. So this is really restricted to people who previously had no gun in possession themselves, or I think also anybody in the household. Hmm. And what they did was they obtained 13 historical extracts from this co- course spaced approximately a year apart and spanning study period. And these extracts included about 74% of residents in the state of California who were eligible to vote and 61% of almost all residents. So a pretty good comprehensive look at a large population in California. All transfers in California by law have to be tracked through firearm dealers, even if it's a private transaction. So if I were to sell a gun to you, Matt, I would have to go through a gun dealer. And that's the way they have very complete records of transfers of both handguns and um, long guns. So they obtained records on 9 million handgun and long gun transfers archived in the dealer record of sale database. That's what that is. Over a 32-year period of time, and they they crossed those those two along with um, California death registry. As I said, they excluded members known to have a gun when the cohort started. Their exposure was beginning on the date of the first gun acquisition. And it's important to know that California has a law that says that if you buy a gun today, you cannot come into possession of that gun for 10 days. So there's a 10-day waiting period. And they took that into consideration. And their analysis was basically a Cox analysis with you know some Kaplan-Meier curves looking at ownership and mortality, all-cause mortality, suicide, suicide by firearm and other methods, suicide by other methods, um, looking at owners versus non-owners. So they had 26 million people were followed for an average of about seven years. 670,000, or about 2.6% of the whole cohort, acquired a gun during the study period. The owners were younger than non-owners at baseline. Um, There were as expected, more males who purchased guns than females, and they tended to be more rural. There were one about one and a half million deaths during this period of time, and there were 17,800 suicides, of which 6,691 were suicide by gun. And of the people who committed suicide, 70% of them were male, and 83% of those, those male suicides were death by gun. And so what they calculated were were hazard ratios on ownership and suicide by gun ownership. And if you were male, your hazard ratio was about 3.3. If you were female, it was about 7.2. And if, if you were a gun owner, the hazard ratio, if you were a male, for suicide 
by gun was a hazard ratio of about 7.8. And for women, it was a hazard ratio of 35. Oh my God. These are huge numbers. Okay. So we're, we're going to, we're going to come back to those numbers though. Cause I think it's really important, but go ahead. Yeah. But what was really interesting was they looked at the temporality of suicide risk by gun. And when they looked at suicide by gun in the first 10 days of ownership, and remember there's this period where you can't have ownership of the gun, the hazard ratio was still about four and a half. But from day 11 to day 30, the hazard ratio was 100. I know. Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah. You know, and I think it really bespeaks the, the observation that in a, a very high proportion of people in this cohort who purchased a gun, seemingly they purchased a gun with the intention yeah. of committing suicide. Um, these are people who are not gun owners. So, you know, they're not hunters and they're not people who have guns as part of their lifestyle. I, I thought this is just a profound finding. Yeah. I, I would agree with you. It's a particularly large effect size. I do want to I do want to just jump in on one thing, which is I went back and looked and I don't actually see anything in there. I could be totally wrong on this, but I didn't see anything in there on there excluding anyone with a, a gun in the family. Just it was they excluded people who already owned a gun themselves. But I, I Chris, if you know differently, no, let I, me I know. Didn't, I didn't see anything like that. Okay. Just that they, they were looking at first uh, new, new gun ownership was the, the yeah. exposure variable. So I do I do want to read something from the the introduction, which you know I have to admit I don't know this field nearly as well, and so it was interesting. They and I've I've left out parts of it, but they say suicide attempt are often impulsive, driven by transient life crises. Most are not fatal, and most people who attempt do not go on to die in a future suicide. Whether or not an attempt is fatal depends heavily on the lethality of the method used, and firearms are extremely lethal. So this is. One of those things where there is a huge public health impact here, because in theory, if you could reduce the number of of guns that people are able to access, you could really have a large impact on the lethality of 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 suicide in the United States, which there are a lot of suicides and and a lot more people die in the United States from guns related to suicide than they do related to homicide. So this is, it's clearly a huge issue and it's something that we have talked about before. Chris, tell us what was your, what was your take on this study? Well, I, w- I was like, Don, I, my, my jaw was on the ground when I saw the, the temporality data. I mean, it, it, it's unmistakable, right? That, that, that there is a, I'm not going to say a high proportion because obviously most people who buy guns do not commit suicide, but amongst the, the, the homicides, the, Proportion of people who bought a gun to kill themselves, excuse me, not homicide, suicides, who bought suicides. a gun to to kill themselves is, is substantial. There was a statistic mentioned that there during this period of observation, there were some 600,000 and change guns that were purchased, and there were 1,200 gun suicides. So if I'm doing the math right, that's about one in 600 guns were purchased to kill themselves and did, you know? Or I should say one in 600 led to a suicide. One must mm-hmm. imagine mm-hmm. that there's a higher number of people who contemplated shooting themselves and then didn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, was, I was astonished at, at the, the, you know, the, the volume of, of handgun-related suicide in, in California, which, as Don mentioned, has got some of the most restrictive gun rules in the, in the country. Yep. And one wonders what this would have looked like if they didn't have a 10-day waiting period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, clearly a huge problem and clearly data that, that is suggestive of, of a substantial problem. So I, I, I have some, some quibbles with this that I, I would want to raise. Let me, let me start with one, though, that is not necessarily a quibble of you know, quality so much as a quibble of interpretation. So you all kind of gasped at the, the difference between men and women in that what they, when they looked at the data on suicide comparing non-owners to owners, when you look at males compared to females, there is a almost eightfold increased risk, relative increase in risk of suicide amongst owners compared to non-owners amongst males. But there is a 35-fold relative increase in females compared to males. And I think, and this is you know something that I, I teach my students and I, I harp on quite a bit, that that misses the point. Not in the sense that missing the point that, that obviously there's a huge problem. There is a massive problem, no question. But the difference between men and women, males and females, is actually minimal. And the reason I say that is if you actually look at the data, on the relative scale, you're talking about effect sizes of 8 versus 35, which sounds huge. But on the absolute scales, they are almost identical. The, the difference in risk for men and women, the absolute difference is almost identical. So this is a table two if you guys want to look at it. But the absolute differences are almost identical. And in fact, the absolute difference is slightly higher for men than for women. And this is a, a fairly common phenomenon. And the reason for it is that the absolute risk of suicide amongst non-owners is higher in males than females. And whenever that happens, if you have a fairly consistent absolute effect size, you're going to see a much bigger relative effect size amongst females. But the absolute is actually what we care about if we want to think about intervening to actually save lives. So the the if you had to make a decision and you could only intervene for males or females, the effect size is going to be the same for males as females, roughly, slightly higher actually for males than females. And I think we miss this point a lot. So Matt, you're saying that the crude rate in males of four, essentially 44 versus 35 in females is not as big a difference as you would expect? No, it's not. the. So you're, you're talking about the 44 and the 35 is the rate in owners. It's the crude rate in owners, right. The issue is look at the rate in non-owners, which is six and one, roughly. Mm -hmm. Right. Seven and one. So yeah, six and one. Six and one. So if mm -hmm. you subtract, you know, 44 from six and you subtract 35 and one, you get roughly the same number. Mm -hmm. But on a relative scale, those look much bigger for the females than the males because the absolute risk of suicide in females is lower than males. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in intervention mm -hmm. terms, if, if we were to actually do something, you'd get the same number of saved lives if you could get rid of gun ownership if you were intervened on males as females. And I think that is, is it's an important point that I think we tend to miss when we focus on relative effects. Mm -hmm. But because the gun, the handgun ownership is, 80, is skewed, 80% male to 20% female, roughly, doesn't that also, I guess, imply that when, when a woman buys a gun, that the risk of suicide is, is proportionally that much higher? Yes, yes. 
So absolutely. So so that, that now you're talking about the sort of attributable fraction, and and we would yeah. we would do better amongst males just because so many more males are buying guns, and males are more likely to attempt suicide. So absolutely. I'm just saying, if you're looking at the effect size, yeah. the 35, you know, makes it seem dramatically different from the seven or the eight, and it really isn't. Yeah. Other thoughts? What, are, what, what I mean, are there things that jumped out to you? I mean, do these effect sizes, are there anything that gives you pause on the effect sizes? Because I will tell you my, you know, I write down my prior on these and I wrote down my prior on this was it's going to be massive. So I wasn't particularly shocked by the size, but I still have some some concerns. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was struck by the the lack of a major difference in terms of non-gun related suicide rates. So which were no difference between gun owners and non-gun owners. And so that, that mm-hmm. that's, you know, striking because it's sort of, you know, attests to the fact that, you know, there was a, an overall far lower rate of suicide by not, by less lethal means, which of course seems intuitively obvious that that would be so, you know, guns are obviously the most efficient way of killing oneself if you don't you know, have another mechanism of doing this. I mean, the, the whole the whole topic is so depressing. I have to say, but guns, you know, you know, if you're sort of thinking about very definitive ways of of taking one's life that are also accessible, guns really rise to the top here. Uh, I mean, a, a definitive way of dying would be to jump off of a off of a high place. But, you know, there aren't that many people who live near a bridge, and it's very scary to jump off of a bridge, whereas I think mm-hmm. it's much easier to get a, get a hold of a handgun. I mean, I, I, I guess I wonder what are the policy implications of this? Like, do we, you know, since we haven't the political will to ban the sale of handguns, which at would, the moment, at the moment, you know, we do have this 10-day waiting period in some places like in California, but what if, if that was also coupled with some sort of screening for depression or suicidality? Yeah. You know, would that be effective? Um, in the same way as we have Good Samaritan phone numbers, you know, on signs on bridges, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, because we know that, that, that people will jump from bridges and that they're often looking for a, a reason not to do it. And so here's an opportunity. Would this be in, in a similar way, you know, every time you attempt to purchase a handgun, in addition to a 10-day waiting period, you, you have to go through some sort of brief screen to see if you are in need of, of emergency psychological help because you're suicidal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would imagine that, you know, if, if the suicide rate is at least one in 600, as these numbers imply, of new gun owners, like the new people who purchase guns, one in 600 of those individuals ends up killing themselves with that gun. You know, the screen positive rate might be pretty, pretty high yield for finding people mm-hmm. who are at imminent risk of harming themselves. So I don't know. Yep. So depressing. I would agree with you. Don, Don, things... Yeah. You know, what, one of my thoughts is, I was, I'm just looking at um, who funded the study, and it was supported by the Fund for Safer Future, the Joyce Foundation, and internal funds from Stanford Law School and Stanford University School of Medicine. And, you know, here we have a study that I think is an extremely well-done study, and it has come up with a very powerful finding, which should shock anybody. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of self-evident, but still seeing it in black and white with these numbers should shock anybody. And it, it makes me realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's the situation that we're in now is kind of on us in the public health research community to not have pushed harder against 
the you know the 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 defunding and disallowing of handgun and gun violence research that CDC was per- permitted to do and and how it became an area that 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 really suffered for lack of of funding and mm-hmm. and I can only hope and think that studies like this and and more studies like this are are the rational way to fight against the insanity of the gun lobby and and the insanity of 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 gun ownership in the United States and you know it's hopefully finding facts and disseminating facts like this is something that maybe in these charge times will will finally have an effect i mean that's the only thing i can hope I hope so too. I absolutely hope so too. I do want to. I do want to say that. So I, you know, I told you that when I wrote down what my prior was on this, that there would be an effect and it would be large, which met my expectation. That said, having read it, I don't know whether or not. So as you said, Don, this is a good study, but there are limitations to this study, in particular because of the way they set up this study. So last week we talked about a kind of a registry-based study in Denmark. This was kind of like a registry-based study in the U.S., but in the United States, we don't have the kind of registries they have in Scandinavia. So they actually had very limited data to be able to control confounding. So they had information on age, sex, race, and census tract. So, you know, certainly they've got the ability to control some of the confounding, but I suspect that this isn't all the confounding. Mm -hmm. And, you know... The, the, what, what, the, what variables would you look for? What yeah. variables would you would you want in order to throw into these models to, to help adjust for, for confounding? It's a good question. I don't really know the field well enough, but the clue seems to me in in the decision that they made around negative controls because they said so we you know we talk a lot about negative controls. They had negative controls here. They looked at whether or not owning a gun was related to or, or gun ownership was related to lung cancer, endocarditis, and alcoholic liver disease. And the reason they chose those, and by the way, they they found no association. They said those are more common amongst people who smoke, inject drugs, or have alcohol use disorder, respectively. And those are established risk factors for suicide. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was actually quite clever and thoughtful of them. Mm-hmm. But but whenever you're using a negative control, you know it's a it's a a hint that you know things are in good shape, but it doesn't totally explain whether or not the problem is. Now, th- these effect sizes are so large that I'm not worried. Uh, I, there's no there's no doubt in my mind there's an effect. I'm just not convinced necessarily that we have the, the perfect right number. And I should say, I mean, it could go in either direction. In fact, it could, it's possible to me that the effect size is even larger or slightly smaller. I don't know what the direction of the confounding would be. I would just say but, I have some additional uncertainty because of that. But aren't you being a picky academic? Um, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, you know, if if you could if you could uh, adjust for you know the proper things to, that might confound it, you might go up and it might go down. But the effect size are still huge. It makes mm-hmm. the point, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I absolutely think that that you're right, and I do think you are correct in saying that I'm being a, a picky academic. If the question is simply uh, simply is the wrong word, but the, the question is defined as. You know, should we? What's reality? Should we? Should we? Should we act? And the question is absolutely: we we need to act because there's very strong, clear, convincing evidence to me. The question of how many lives would we save was going to depend on a how we're able to to do this, and because it's not a we're not in a we don't live in a country where we could simply ban 
ban guns, the approach to preventing the suicides is going to be heavily dependent. And therefore, what the effect size actually is does matter a little bit in terms of how much benefit. But whether or not we should act, I would I would absolutely agree with you. I, I am being very, very nitpicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any 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 other thoughts anyone wants to add? No, it's such a huge problem. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to segment two, which we're going to get into a, a COVID-related paper. Uh, we did say we weren't going to take on a lot of COVID-related papers while the news on COVID was still coming out. But for segment two, we felt like COVID-related topics were still relevant. And we wanted to look at a study that was published in JAMA. It was, I don't know if you'd call it a, an essay or an opinion piece, but this was entitled Using Controlled Trials to Resolve Key Unknowns About Policy during the COVID-19 pandemic by Paul Starr. And this comes out of the debate on whether or not lockdowns were effective in in reducing transmission and therefore mortality from COVID. And of course, how politicized the issue of lockdowns actually has become. And the problem is that, that it's there's no amazing evidence one way or the other as to whether or not lockdowns worked at the time that we were implementing them. Uh, this was something that was was raised by some of the critics of lockdowns. But of course, there's no way to know whether or not a policy is going to be effective at the time that you implement it when you're in the midst of a pandemic for a novel disease. All you can really do is look at you know historical comparisons and the evidence we have on other diseases, but that's not really great evidence. And so their point was, we should be considering doing trials of policies for COVID-19 so that we actually have good evidence to guide changes in policies or policy implementation in other places. Now, I do want to be very clear. They are talking about trials, not randomized trials. So trials in which you have some sort of a comparison group, but we're not talking about randomizing people to a lockdown or not to a lockdown. We are really talking about what I would call cluster level interventions that are implemented in some places and not implemented in others. And therefore we use those places that chose not to implement as the comparison arm. And therefore they come along with all of the confounding problems that come along with unrandomized trials. But they, so they are talking about two specific areas that they use as examples. So two upcoming key policy issues that will require critical choices, alternative housing for people who test positive for SARS-CoV-2 and reopening of schools. And they sort of say, what if we were to do trials of different approaches that would then allow us to, you know, refine policies in places that made these decisions or change policies in places that didn't make these decisions? It seems to me there are certainly some problems with this strategy. On the other hand, we do certainly want to gain as much information as we can and learn as much as we can from places that are actually trying these things. So, Don, let me start with you. Is this? Do you think this is a reasonable approach to trying to make decisions around what we should be doing with with COVID policy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's. I think it's flawed. But it's reasonable. And, you know, in the setting of a pandemic, when we are just thirsting for evidence, even if it's faulty evidence, or hopefully not thoroughly faulty evidence, yep. slightly faulty evidence, because bad evidence could actually be very counterproductive. But I think that that what they proposed did make sense to me. And I think that there could be some value that would be extracted from the findings of, of setting up these sorts of what did you call them? Cluster. 
I think of them as cluster, non-randomized cluster trials. Cluster observational studies, in essence. So, you know, I think a lot of what's happening in the in the the, the melee of, of science that's coming out during this pandemic is that there's a lot of bad science that's coming out, and there's a lot of unstructured observational and small studies that are coming to conclusions that are more harmful than they're useful. So I, I think that if we were to do this, it would be really important to do it not on the fly and to do it in a very structured way and try and balance the two or three or five clusters to the extent possible, given the fact that it is the real world. Mm-hmm. And that may, be, that may be difficult. And we have to maybe have a threshold for a quality threshold for saying, you know, it, it's not worth doing this particular series of, 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 of studies, observational studies, comparing, you know, different geographic areas or different school openings and, 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 not, and not get our, ourselves into a situation where we've generated data that we don't really trust. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's, these are extenuating times, and I think that they require some extenuating efforts at, uh, at trying to generate data as quickly as possible, because time is of the essence in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would certainly agree with that. I mean, I suppose the question really is, are, are we, I mean, is this novel? I mean, are we not doing this anyway? These are like, aren't these like practical trials? Yeah, I mean, we are, we are, we are certainly would plan to evaluate and try to understand the effects of any interventions that are tried when there is a suitable comparison group to compare them to. And obviously that comes with all of the potentials for confounding and all the, you know, things that we worry about on this program. But certainly we would we would plan to use that information. Chris, is there anything novel in here? Not really. I mean, like you say, this is being done. You know, this is a bit close to home because my wife uh, was volunteering to do shifts at, at the East Newton campus at Boston Medical Center, which is a hospital that had been mothballed by Boston Medical Center and was going to be reconverted and repurposed, but was reopened to serve as a quarantine area for homeless individuals who were COVID-19 infected. And they were basically the idea was that they would stay there until they were PCR negative repeatedly, and then they would be allowed to go uh, out. And they were fed and, you know, given a place to sleep, and you know, encouraged basically strongly encouraged to not wander around the hospital and not to leave the building. Mm-hmm. So you know, these are things that we're doing already, like you say. Uh, and I don't know, in some ways, whether we need to do experiments around this, particularly social experiments which are so very difficult to do in the first place. I mean, you think about what makes a randomized controlled trial feasible is that the experimenters have a tight control over the exposure. You know, you get the intervention or you don't get the intervention. Whereas when you're talking about a a sort of a a social behavioral intervention, it's very difficult to to keep individuals within two exposure groups from crossing back and forth because they're free to do so. And so I I think that that makes these sort of you know social experiments almost impossible to actually conduct well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe wonder instead why we're not focusing more on experimental interventions around covid-19 uh, harm reduction or risk reduction where we have control over the exposure such as the use of indoor sterilizing devices or air filtration systems or air exchange systems or you know, there are many things that can be done, like UV lights on the ceiling and, and HEPA filters and opening the windows and putting in fans. All of these are examples of things that particularly like in a school setting would seem to be much more feasible. And if you really wanted to know whether the, like A versus B works, you could do that in a randomized way. But with that said, 
we, we kind of know that these all work already. And so why aren't we just doing them? You know, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I, I felt like I, I wasn't sold by, by the author's basic premise here that what we need mm-hmm. is more experiments of this kind. I sort of feel like what we need to do is to, is to do what we know works at scale. And, and, and maybe where we're falling but, short but here is that we're not, we, we, we have fallen short on explaining to the, to the general public what works in, tils, in terms of, well, of cleansing indoor but, air spaces. But, but I, I think you're making a leap, Chris, because I, th- I think that you know, the example that you're giving, you're saying that it, it's commonsensical that a fan and an open window and a UV light in a classroom works. It's true. It is commonsensical. And it, 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 it's hard not to, not to believe that it wouldn't work. But we don't know whether UV light indoors in a classroom at X number of feet from you know, the uh, interaction between two people actually does work. And so we know that it works in the lab. We know that you know, it kills coronavirus in a Petri dish under very controlled conditions, but we don't know whether it works in a, in a, in a, a real-world setting. And it may be that it doesn't. And that, I think, would be valuable to know, don't you? Uh, I, I do, uh, but I, it seems to me those are, those are smaller questions that we, we can or we can randomize or not. But the, the big questions that people want to know about and the decisions that policymakers are really struggling with, you know, school systems and whatnot are, are big questions like, do we, you know, do we send kids back to school or not? You know, those, those are obviously, we don't know the answer to how risky that is or, or what that's going to be like. And I, I do, you know, obviously, I think we need to do this. I don't think it's particularly novel, but I would also say, it is somewhat problematic in that, you know, there's certainly going to be confounding in that schools that go back to in-classroom settings are likely to be schools that are either schools that have to go back because they're, they're you know, they, they their families don't have the ability to supervise the kids at home, don't have the internet bandwidth, whatever, or the computers. Or, you know, it could also be schools that just actually have more space and therefore can space kids out. So it's going to be hard to really, really tease out the effects. And I also worry, like, by the time we get this information, is it potentially already going to be too late for the decision making for this current pandemic? And I don't know that. I, I, I understand your both of your positions here. I do feel that there is much more precedent for engineering solutions than for other interventions that have been embraced. And you guys will remember from two weeks ago that I got on a high horse and complained that we had put so much emphasis on hand washing, despite the absence of evidence that hand washing played a significant role, or contamination through hands played a significant role in transmission of COVID-19, and then presented a paper where it seemed to show that for at least another virus, fomite transmission was very inefficient. In fact, could not be demonstrated. So... You know, I think when it comes to, you know, trying to figure out how to engineer safe indoor spaces, there is a considerable literature on this. Um, one of the, the authors I, I'm, I'm particularly impressed with is, is Lindsay Marr at uh, Virginia Tech, who has studied infectious disease and also the whole physics of aerosols. And, and she's very persuasive on, on the argument that what we should be doing is to in, employ at a large scale air filters and air exchange systems and possibly UV lights on the ceilings. Because we, we know that for other diseases like tuberculosis, the upward facing UV lights with air circulation is actually quite effective at reducing transmission rates indoors. So, you know, since we have now 
realize that COVID-19 spreads through aerosols, as does TB, why would we not adopt the same sorts of infection control strategies in schools? I find this really baffling, to be quite honest. I think cost is a really big one. I mean, I think we already know that there is uh, large budget budget shortages and you know, large amounts of changes that are already needing to be made. It doesn't seem, I mean, I, I hear you, but it doesn't seem to me those are the questions that are actually being asked right now. And therefore, I think we we have to focus on whether or not we can provide evidence for the right. ones that are right. currently but being asked. There's, 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 a, there's a lovely review article that was published in Environmental International, a journal I don't read very often, but Lindsay Marr was one of the co-authors on this. And they, they describe a hierarchy of interventions against indoor infections. The most effective strategy is elimination, which is to remove the pathogen from the air, which would be done either through venting the indoors to the outdoors through fans or by using HEPA filters. Then there, the next effective, most effective is engineering controls, where you try to separate the individual people who are at risk from the pathogen by circulating the air into different parts of the building. The third is to provide sort of counseling through administrative means to counsel individuals on on risk mitigation. And then the the, the last and the least effective is personal protective equipment, i.e. masks. And yet our strategy for the fall seems to be mainly about focused on masks, which is fine because masks work and we should be doing that. But, but, you know, this is, in a sense, the, the, the mask, the physical individual barrier is the last line of defense. And we're using it as our first line of defense for indoor transmission. And masks are also not free. So, you know, if you think about the aggregate cost of all the masks and the failure rates that are going to happen because of, you know, masks are not 100% effective and people are not 100% adherent to the use of masks. And if you compare that with, you know, a good fan in your room, an upward facing UV light or a HEPA filter, which is probably, you know, $200 per room in your school. So yes, it would be many thousands of dollars to do this. But the, the, you know, those costs actually don't seem so extraordinary when you think of the counterfactual, which is the paying for the hospitalization of one person, which could go into the tens or twenties of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars easily. So I, I think we were thinking about the economics in, in, a, in a kind of reductive way here. And we're thereby limiting the, the range of options we have to do this in a more aggressive fashion. Don, any last thoughts? No, I don't disagree with you, Chris. I, I, I do think, though, tuberculosis, uh, coronavirus is not TB. And it, it makes a lot of sense that we think about the, the same, same tactics. But I think it would be really important to establish the fact that what we expect to be the effect on COVID-2 would, in fact, be what happens as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, sure. what happens with TB. You know, because you you can make the argument that there's not that t- much TB that's that's actually aerosolized, whereas there's a whole potentially a whole lot of SARS-CoV-2 that is aerosolized, and so it could you know it just could be a mass effect of the amount of, of pathogen in the air and on the surfaces. Certainly, we do not know the answers to these questions. You are quite right, but since the the genesis of this of this segment two was on you know are there randomized controlled trials we could do around. Uh, risk reduction strategies. Non-randomized. Non-randomized. I would say like you could actually do a randomized controlled trial quite easily of HEPA filters plus or minus lights plus or minus a box fan in the window uh, or two in various combinations at several schools. One could actually feasibly conduct those studies 
you know, it would or be a lot easier. And, you know, it would be a lot easier to, to do that. You could even do it. I mean, I would say you could do it on a classroom basis, but you know, the students are are moving between classes. But if you were doing like in a primary school where this the kids are basically in the same classroom all day long, rather than high school where they go from class to class to class, it would be much easier to do that experiment looking at environmental protection uh, strategies. And I, and so- I would agree, but I, that assumes that kids are are going back, and I think we they, that's the question that hasn't actually been answered, and so I think you know we only time will tell on that. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And uh, Don, you are going to go first this time. What do you got for us? Have you guys you guys have traveled a lot, and um, you've been to a lot of different countries, and have you noticed that there are some countries where the 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 banknotes are made of something different than the banknotes that we have here in the United States. Yeah, in Zambia, they're all plastic. They're all plastic, right? So they're like so a polymer. Same in Vietnam. And same in Vietnam and apparently some other countries. So I found a paper which looked at money and transmission of bacteria, Ooh, which okay. was an antimicrobial resistance and infection control by Habib Gedick, Timothy Voss, and... Andrea Voss, and it was published in uh, 2013. And what they did was they they took a a series of banknotes from uh, different countries, and they inoculated them with various kinds of bacteria and let them sit for some period of time. And then they swabbed them to try to see how much of the bacteria would grow subsequently. Mm-hmm. And they looked at pathogens. They looked at methicillin-resistant Staph aureus and um, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus and E. coli. And then they, they, they used the they used euros, a currency called a kuna from Croatia, a currency called a liu from Romania, the dirham from Morocco, the U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar, and the Indian rupee. And the bottom line was that they found that much of the currency was not able to retain viable pathogens for very much period of time at all, except for the Romanian loo, which <laughs> thoroughly failed all the tests. Why? And that is because that particular banknote, unlike any of the others, is a polymer-based banknote, as opposed to a much more complex kind of cloth-oriented manufacturing process for the U.S. dollar and the euro and the Canadian dollar. And they also, I mean, it failed miserably. You know, for Ooh. like 24 hours, all three yeah. of those pathogens were, you know, obtained at very high levels. They also did a second experiment where they inoculated the various currencies with non-pathogenic bacteria like methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus and, a, you know, a Putsi E. coli. And they found that the euro was not able to be a vehicle to inoculate onto the hands of a second and third person those bacteria on the on the dollar bill and the US dollar apparently is capable of transmitting from one person to another staph aureus mm. and again <laughs> the Romanian loo failed miserably yeah um, and there was there was much inoculation onto the hands of the second person um, who touched the the dollar bill after it was after it was contaminated with these bacteria. So huh. I guess the bottom line is that when you're traveling and you are in a country that is using these polymer banknotes, you need to be really careful and you need to wash your hands frequently and uh, try to not use them at all and use Apple pay. 
And this exactly, this is why we should be a cashless society. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's These so, are fomites. It so <laughs> jibes with, is- with, 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 with other data, too. I mean, there was that interesting study in the New England Journal published a couple of months ago that got everyone's attention about the persistence of coronavirus on different surfaces. And the right. one that was most accommodating was plastic. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yep. and one of the least was cardboard, which I think is, yeah. is fairly akin to um, linen. You know, they're both plant-based weaves, basically. Mm-hmm. So, interesting. Yeah, and the duration okay. that they the duration they looked at was a full twenty-four hours. So, interesting. Be careful when you're in Romania. Wow. Yeah. All right. I will. I'm not touching the money there. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to go second. Mine is short, but I I worry that I have set myself up for failure on this one for two different reasons. The first is I do not understand almost anything about this study. I can barely pronounce the words in it. I got almost nothing out of it. And I'm worried that the part that I find interesting isn't actually going to be, you're not even going to find it relevant. But that has never stopped me before. So I'm just going to barrel straight ahead. And I'm going to give you what I can of this study. So this was a study published in Frontiers in Physiology. Charlene Hanlon was the first author. And it was basically, from what I can gather, this was a study about hens hens laying eggs, and it was about growth in those hens and particular hormones that relate to the growth of the hen, but then also then transition to help support reproduction, help to, 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 to lay the eggs. So I'll just read a little bit of this, see if it means anything to you. So they say, while well, photo period has generally has been generally accepted as the primary, if not exclusive, cue to stimulate reproduction in photoperiodic breeders such as the laying hen. Current knowledge suggests that metabolism and or body composition can also play an influential role to control the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Does that mean anything to you guys? No, it does actually. <laughs> this review thus... Thus intends to first describe how photoperiodic and metabolic cues can impact the HPG axis, then explore and propose potential common pathways and mechanisms through which both cues could be integrated. And so what I then gathered from it is essentially, and there's a line in here at the end, sort of it's about the, these include PPARG, I couldn't even read these words, for impact in liver metabolism during the switch from growth to reproduction. So the same hormone is sort of playing a role. I don't get a thing about it. What I liked about it <laughs> was Jesus' paper. Yeah, go ahead. What I liked you about like- it was the the title of the paper, which I'm uh, going to read. In, I'm going to read. They have a title and then a colon second, but I'm going to read the second. I'm going to read it in reverse. So then the title would be "Photoperiodic versus Metabolic Cues in Chicken: Colon Should I Lay or Should I Grow?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is bad. That is bad. If you're if you're a Clash fan though, that's good. Should I yeah. stay or should I go? That's a good one. There you go. London Calling, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. It's a great album. All right. So Chris, you have you have teased us with what you're going to talk about last sure. episode two weeks ago. I, I'm just give gonna, us the give us the follow up. Yeah, I'm 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 going to slightly just riff off of what you're saying when you feel like you're you're out of your depth and you're you know you're <laughs> dealing with a lot of terminology you don't understand and and Don knows this already. I. I purchased a boat and it arrived last week and Don and I set up the boat uh, in my driveway last Saturday and actually took it sailing on, on Sunday. But when it came with this, uh, this owner's manual <laughs> for right. how to rig the sails, and I'm going to read you just two sentences from this, <laughs> setting up the main sheet. Okay. I know what a main sheet is.
speed is. That's the thing that, that pulls the, that moves, controls the, the mainsail. So it says here, the main sheet has a block with a becket at the upper end and a fiddle block with a cam cleat at the lower end. There is a reef hook in the becket block for securing to the boom webbing strap and a snap shackle on the bail of the fiddle block for securing the rope traveler. <laughs> so, so, so imagine Chris and me in oh. his driveway trying to figure out where what? to insert this rope based on those instructions. Where is the insert? We had, bailed. we had to call for help. I'm just thinking like if this was like an IKEA furniture, we'd be done. This is or, or, and you're or putting together. You're putting together a boat in which you are going to put your body and then you're going to put that boat in the water and your life is going to depend on that boat being put together correctly. Yep. It was um, it was a miracle that we succeeded. We did get it right eventually, but it, it took a while. <laughs> yeah, but we had to call the guy who built the boat. <laughs> to translate into English. Yeah. Anyway, Kevin, if you're listening, we're, we're not teasing you. We're, we're talking. We're just commenting our, on our own nautical incompetence. Anyway, um, back to the wacky and weird. So last time I presented a paper that I thought was really interesting back from the 1980s, and I forgot to list that the author, his name was Elliot Dick, Elliot Dick, and it was published in Journal of Infectious Disease in 1987. And this is the follow-on paper published in Journal of Infectious Disease in 1988. In the original paper, they questioned what, what proportion of rhinovirus is transmitted through aerosols versus fomites, which are indirect, inanimate objects that connect a person, like a glass of water that one person pours and the other one person then drinks out of. And that what they found is in the case of the rhinovirus that, they, they, that almost all of the transmission appeared to actually be due to aerosols. And they really couldn't prove that fomite transmission added very much. And so they, they felt that this was goring a sacred belief about the transmission of this disease. Now, in the, in the era of COVID-19, we have the same dilemma, which was that we don't really know what proportion of COVID-19 is transmitted through aerosols versus hand direct you know, transfer when someone sneezes at you versus indirect transfer through inanimate objects, i.e. fomites. So at the conclusion of their first experiment, where they showed that the fomite route didn't really matter, they were left puzzling, like, why is it? Like, what, how can we explain this? So they did this follow-on experiment to try to to try to track the, the concentration of rhinovirus along a chain of contacts. So if you imagine, if you will, the way a fomite transmission would occur is that I've got rhinovirus, right? And I'm pulling a pint for my friend Don, okay? And so before I pull the pint, I stick my finger up my nose and get Gross. some slimy rhinovirus-laden snot on my finger, which I then transfer to the rim of his pint while I'm pulling it. Gross okay. and yet totally believable. Totally believable. And this he is calls how it works. Me his friend. And his friend, right. <laughs> and so now Don has to pick up that slimy rhinovirus with his fingers and transfer it to his nose. I suppose he could also drink it, but let's pretend that he's not gonna he's not gonna drink drink, you know, it's it's the snot is further down on the neck of the glass, so he, he can't get his lips down that far. So so he has to so we have to go that from was a lot of detail. from nose to finger to Don's finger, to Don's nose, right? That's the chain via the, of events. Via the pint. Via the pint, via the fomite, which is the pint. And so we go my nose to my finger, to your finger, to your nose. And that's the chain. And so what they did is that they experimentally inoculated volunteers with rhinovirus. And then they used poker chips or playing cards as the fomite, where someone would either, you know, use some cell culture rhinovirus and drip it onto the 
to the playing card, or whether they would actually take someone directly from someone's nose and apply it to the fomite. So the, the way the experiment worked is that, you know, like say I, I got some snot on my finger and I would touch a, a poker chip with it. I would rub the poker chip vigorously to kind of make sure it's smeared all over the, the poker chip evenly. And then Don would take the poker chip and he would rub it between his finger and, you know, and thumb and forefinger to transfer as much of that onto his finger as he could. And then since we didn't actually want to give Don rhinovirus in the experiment, we would then culture the tip of his of his finger to see how much rhinovirus we could obtain off of the, the the last finger of the chain and that that last finger is sort of the surrogate for actually sticking your finger up your nose don and, 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 and so what they found was really interesting actually which was that when the when they when they did this sort of trans series of transfer experiments and the the snot was wet and fresh um <laughs> they could get they could detect rhinovirus all the way to you know, the, the final finger, which is the surrogate for Don's nose. But the, the concentration of virus, of virus really plummeted fast. So like mm. the, the initial donor finger, which is the finger that went up my nose, when you cultured that, you could get 100,000 TCID 50s, which is like the median infectious dose of virus. So it's like a concentration of virus. So you get 100,000 100, TCI fingers directly off of the finger that I had contaminated. But then when you cultured it off of the the playing card or the poker chip, it had dropped from 100,000 to 3,200. And when it went to the second finger, which is Don's finger, it would have now gone down to 32. So we have a 10,000-fold reduction when the virus goes directly across that chain all within the course of about a minute. Mm. So it really plummets fast in terms of recoverable virus. And if they, instead of doing it right away where the virus was wet and slimy initially, instead, if you allowed it to dry on the poker chip or, excuse me, dry on the first finger before you tried to apply it to the poker chip, you got a drop of 32,000 from my finger to 100 on the poker chip down to undetectable on finger number two. And if you waited like, you know, 15 minutes, the, you know, basically you could never recover virus off of the second finger. And so the, 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 decay in infectivity across this chain of fomites, which is what would have to occur, not just for rhinovirus, but for any infectious disease that is supposed to go through this route. The, 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 the decline in recoverable virus was astonishingly fast and efficient. Even with just a little delay, you really couldn't get it off of the second chip. And this sort of explained the earlier very surprising finding where they had played cards with this deck of cards and this, this set of pens and poker chips for 12 hours to the point where the cards were kind of actually sticky and gooey because of all the snot that was on them. And then they gave them to the second group of people who played with them for another 12 hours and none of the, the second 12 individuals got rhinovirus. And so the, the efficiency of the fomite route was apparently zero in that case. They did the same thing in this experiment here except in addition to just seeing whether they got infected, they also looked at the, at the, the concentration of virus across the chain and that they found that like basically the concentration of virus on the poker chips and the cards was really, really low. It was very hard to detect it at all, even though the cards were being played with and handled by you know, people who had you know, streams of rhinovirus-laden snot pouring out of their noses and were constantly touching their faces and constantly contaminating the cards. And yet the cards and the poker chips did not remain infectious for very long. And the, the other thing that just remind, comes back to Don's is that the cards were particularly poor at 
yielding recoverable mm. virus. Whereas the poker chips were, it was slightly easier to find it off of the plastic than when, than it was off of the paper. So that's another sort of, you know, pin in the yeah. the argument that plastic is much more conducive to allowing viruses or maybe bacteria to survive on surfaces than is paper. And so interesting. it was very interesting. And it really makes me sort of, again, kind of cross that, that we put so much effort into sort of promoting handwashing at the beginning of this at the expense of, of masks, and which would, you know, are, are really the only way of dealing with aerosols on a personal basis. Of course, we can try to clear the air, but, but uh, the personal protection, you know, against the aerosol route, the only thing we have is a mask right now. And Chris, just so just so I understand, is the is the idea that the the concentration of the virus is lessening because it's going through these these steps and therefore less of the virus is being transformed, or is it is the virus actually decaying? Is the, the viral is the dose decaying? Yeah, that in the transfer they couldn't answer that question whether it's being killed mm. or if it's just that it, it's it's really hard to get it back off the surface. Hmm. But you can kind of imagine it because like, you know, even if we're not dealing with with rhinovirus, like if, you know, if you wet your finger and then touch it to the table and then touch another finger to that table, that that second finger that touched it has got a lot less wetness on it than the first. Absolutely. You know, so every transition drops by some large amount. Sure. And it depends on the adherent property between the, the wetness and the second contact. So... All right. Well, all the same, I'm not going to go around touching everything. So there you have it. There you have it. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Chris at IDDocGill, or Don at DTheo1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and not charging his camera so that he doesn't actually... Well, I guess so we can't see him during this this episode so that uh, we can't tell all the grimacing that he's doing. But thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>